Mocha Dick may have been one of the inspirations for Melville, but it wasn't the only white whale terrorizing sailors across the sea. In 1902, a whale ship called the Platina set sail out of New Bedford. On board the ship was a man named Amos Smalley. He was Native American and part of the Wampanoag tribe of Aquina on Martha's Vineyard. He uh, is remembered largely because he was one of the last people to go whaling. So if you uh, go to Aquina uh, today, you are very likely to hear about Amos Smalley and see some of his relics in the uh, gift shops that are on the, the Gayhead Cliffs. That's historian Nancy Shoemaker. She's written about the history of Native Americans and whaling. She says Smalley started whaling as a teenager and eventually became a boat steerer. His job was to send deadly harpoons into the whales. Okay, but what does guy Amos Smalley have to do with Moby Dick? Well, one day while they were sailing near the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic, Smalley and the rest of the crew came across a whale unlike any they'd seen before. Suddenly, as we drew near the whale, Andrew spoke in a voice I'll never forget. That fish is white. He's white all over. The men were nervous now, too. Some of their faces looked almost as white as the whale. West beckoned to me to stand up. I put my paddle down easy, took my place in the bow, and lifted the harpoon. Then I saw him, the full bulk of him, every inch of him whiter than the spray he was kicking up. That's an excerpt from an essay Smalley published with the help of a writer from Reader's Digest in 1957. Now, I'm not going to reveal the title of the essay, not just yet. Let's first return to the high seas. It was my job to harpoon that whale, white or black, and I braced myself to do it. Now came what was almost a stammer from Andrew West. Give it to him, old tomahawk. I got my iron into him all right, or I thought I did. But seconds passed. I leaned forward, listening to the sound of the bomb exploding. Finally, I heard the muffled pung, pung, far down inside. There was a quick flurry on the surface, and the water shot up like a fountain as the whale went down, straight down, taking the line fast. Everybody in the boat was tense, thinking he was going to drag us down with him. I reached for the knife in case we had to cut loose. But in the gray dusk, I could hardly see the rope. Down, down he went, taking out 20 fathoms. Then he stopped, and we waited, breathless. Now I'm waiting breathless. Okay, Brian, I'll relieve your stress. This essay is called I Killed Moby Dick. So Smalley and the crew succeeded in their hunt and continued their voyage. This essay came out more than a half century after Smalley's adventure. But at that point, many of the Aquina community already knew the story. So Smalley uh, was a great raconteur, and he had um, apparently, this is what uh, people from Aquina have told me, that he would sort of meet the ferry uh, as it arrived at Martha's Vineyard and was, uh, in a way, a kind of street performer or told his tales. And... Um, well-known enough so that in uh, there was a sort of resurgence of interest in whaling in the uh, 1950s, and uh, a major movie, Hollywood movie, with Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab uh, came out in 1956, and Smalley was well-known enough uh, and um, invited to the premiere as, you know, a surviving whaleman. 
But Shoemaker says the relationship between Moby Dick and Native Americans goes deeper than even Amos Molly. When the novel came out in 1851, the whaling memoir was already a popular genre. And Shoemaker says Herman Melville perpetuated stereotypes already present in these memoirs about Native whalers. For those people who are familiar with uh, Moby Dick, his, he does have a New England Indian character, Tashtigo. Tashtigo is a harpooner. Now, having been a whaleman himself, Melville went whaling on the Akushnet uh, for a year in the early 1840s. Uh, he knew that there was no rank called harpooner on a, on a whale ship. They were boat steers, but he exaggerated the spear-throwing aspect. And his three harpooners are all what you might call primitives. Uh, Tashtigo, the New England Indian, Dagu, who's an African, and Queequeg, who is most famous and is the Pacific Islander and portrayed by Melville as a cannibal. Again, you can see Melville's playing on this idea that these people are natural hunters, uh, naturally bloodthirsty, uh, natural killers. Uh, and they all have these sort of exoticized first uh, single names. And that wasn't the case at the time. So uh, New England Indians in the mid-19th century, they had names like Jesse Webquish Jr. Or names that you wouldn't even recognize as, as Indian, like uh, Joel Jared. Uh, and so uh, Melville knew this, and, but he was just playing off of uh, public expectations and uh, romanticizing. And even though native New Englanders were stereotyped as natural whale hunters, Shoemaker says there's little evidence that shows that they actually hunted whales before colonists arrived. Instead, they mostly harvested whales that washed up on shore. But over time, native Americans became a big part of the whaling workforce. And as the industry grew, the stereotypes stuck with them. American Indians are put in the position of being boat steers or harpooners. They actually just, they just follow the same track as white men until they hit a glass ceiling. Uh, you know, in um, the 1820s, uh, the glass ceiling was boat steer. So they could start as a green hand and they would rise usually as far as boat steer. Uh, and, but then in the 1840s, they become, uh, there's such a need for uh, reliable, trustworthy officers as these whale ships uh, become internationally diverse uh, and where most of the crew can't speak English or a lot of the crew can't speak English, uh, these Indians become very valuable as officers. And so then they start being promoted until you know they hit a glass ceiling around second mate or first mate. Despite the glass ceiling, whaling still offered a good source of income for some native whalers. Ramona Peters grew up in the whaling community of Mashpee on Cape Cod. She still lives there today as part of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. She says years ago, whalers were seen as celebrities in the community. And these men were what would have been millionaires. They, it was not just um, middle income at all. In time, it became an, um, a real profession that and some of our people were sought after. And in which case they made quite a bit of money, um, and and this was a, uh, this was the only industry in where upward mobility was offered to us as well. But Peter says money didn't always come easy for Native whalers. In the early days of the industry, some Native Americans were denied their earnings. Some of the English uh, captains started to 
uh, drop our people off, our men off in different random places along the way, on the way back, um, so that when the ship came back home, they weren't they didn't have to be paid. So their their lay, as they called it, um, their lay was not transferred. And when these men finally found their way home, it might take a year or months and months. So our men began to uh, put their their lay in their wives' names. And so their wives could show up at the dock and collect the pay. That's an incredible story. I mean, you can almost visualize somebody wandering from, you know, New Orleans or, you know, somewhere in Central America, Yucatan, trying to get back to Massachusetts. Unbelievable. And then the women would, uh, the strategy, it sounds like, that they developed, it was a way for them to exercise some authority over the folks who were overseeing the industry. Right. Correct. These Native men were uh, high-ranking, um, but on land, we, were all, we all faced the same level of um, racism. Today, Peter says whaling has a complicated legacy in communities like the Mashpee Wampanoag. On the one hand, it provided a chance for some people in the tribe to climb the socioeconomic ladder. But at what price? The Wampanoag regard whales as special. But the industry severely lowered their population in New England. Just for example, right whales once flourished in the region, but today they're one of the most endangered species in the ocean. Peters is now part of efforts to ensure that all whales remain safe around Cape Cod. But stories and folklore persist in the community of whaling adventurers and famed whalemen like Amos Smalley. Peters recalls the time she ran into the charismatic Smalley one day on the docks. I happened to be there with another grandmother. She was visiting a friend of hers, and um, I guess I was, a, you know, dilly-dallying. She said, well, I could stay there at the docks and watch the ships come in and out, and she'd be back for me. So I spent a good part of that day um, there watching him. <laughs> he was uh, he was there a crowd. He was, um, he was actually collecting money as well <laughs> for his stories. And people would uh, gather around and he was, I'm the one who killed the, day, the Moby Dick, <laughs> the great white whale. Ramona Peters is a tribal historic preservation officer for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. We also talk with historian Nancy Shoemaker. She's the author of many books, including Native American Whalemen in the World, The Contingency of Race. <laughs> 